You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we discuss using nootropics, biohacking, and nutrition to help you boost your cognition. My name is Eric, and if it is your first time here listening or watching the podcast, then please take a second and remember to subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to this on audio, do it right there on your phone. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that big red subscribe button right under the video. If you are enjoying what you're listening to or watching throughout the episode, then head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave the podcast a five-star review. And if you are someone who is looking for the best quality supplements and nootropics on the market today, then head on over to holisticnootropics.com and download a copy of my free supplement buying guide. This is a fully comprehensive guide that will walk you through ingredient by ingredient on what to look for on all of the major supplement and nootropic products that are on the market today, because the supplement industry is a $100 billion industry, and most of it is absolute junk, but people are buying this stuff, hoping they're getting the nutrients that are supposedly in these products, and typically either they're not, or the products are filled with a bunch of fillers and preservatives and proprietary blends that don't really measure up to what they're selling. So make sure you head on over to holisticnotropics.com and get my buying guide so that way you can only buy the best quality products on the market today. All right, let's jump into today's podcast with Dr. Michael Blumenfield. Michael Blumenfield is an award-winning board-certified psychiatrist who does clinical consultations, psychotherapy, and psychopharmacology with adults. He is certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology in Psychiatry and was certified in psychosomatic medicine in 2005 by the same board. He is the past president of the American Academy of Psychoanalysts and Dynamic Psychiatry. He's authored over 40 scientific publications and has written numerous books and five different, uh, he's new, he's written five different books, including his most recent book, Shrink Talk, which discusses a number of psychological issues, including the ethical dilemmas psychiatrists can face dealing with anxiety, panic, depression, suicidal thoughts, sexuality, COVID, PTSD, and his interactions with two U.S. presidents. This guy is filled with stories and we're happy to have him. Dr. Blumenfield, welcome to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and I appreciate you having me. This is exciting because um, I, I always look forward to talking to people in the mental health profession. Of course, you know, your work and your experience, you, you've been on the front lines. You, you, you've you been helping people for a long time in a lot of situations in a professional setting. You're not just somebody who's, you know, making a product and putting it out there for the masses. Like you are actually seeing what people are, are living through with a lot of these conditions. So before we jump into talking about your book and, and your specific experience in some of these different, uh, with some of these different conditions, can you talk a little bit about why you chose to go into psychiatry in the first place? Okay, it's, it's an interesting story. <laughs> um, I, really, I really wanted to be a, uh, a radio broadcaster. That was my, that was my uh, ambition. I, I used to, when, in college, I used to do the play-by-play -play broadcasts of football and basketball. I, um, I had a program called Face the Mic, you know, uh, and that's what I wanted to be. And um, my parents wanted me to uh, become a doctor. And I wasn't so sure that that's what I really wanted. And then in my senior year of college, uh, I, there was an opportunity to work with a graduate student who was planting electrodes into the brain of cats and, and would look at the brain waves while they walked around. In other words, it was, it was electrodes into their brain and then it went to the ceiling and the cats could walk around, do things and we could see their, their brain waves. And, and I took a, a like a, as an assistant to him and I saw that you could actually tell what the cat was going to do in advance by looking at his brain waves. And that fascinated me. So I said, OK, I'll go to medical school. <laughs> and uh, so I went to medical school and then I became then I had a couple of lectures by some of the uh, uh, psychiatry professors. And I said, this is really fascinating. And I said, OK, I'm going to become I'm going to become a doctor, make my parents happy, but I'm going to become a psychiatrist. Mm. Yeah, I, I, it, the brain is so 
is so interesting. It's, it's such a dynamic organ. It's such a, it's such an unpredictable, like we're still learning so much about it. You know, I feel like with things like the kidney or even the heart, you know, even though we're, we're always making discoveries, we know generally it's, it's very predictable. We know how the heart's going to work. We know how the kidney's going to work. We know how the lung's going to work, but the brain, it's like its own universe. And it's like, we still don't really even understand how the consciousness part of it works with the physical structures in the brain. So, you know, this is, this is what keeps you in business because you see so many people coming that are so unique and so individual yet they, they fall into these different buckets, but yet have such diverse stories I'd imagine. Right. But remember, it's not all organic, you know, and there's the organic substrate of the brain and then there's the experience you know, your life experience, your experience with your parents, your experience growing up, all that influences you. You know, in other words, why are you sitting here, you know, as an interviewer, you know, what I really wanted to do once, you know, and if we looked into your past and if we looked into your childhood and to your experiences in school and everything, we, we could trace why you're here and why you've gravitated towards doing what you do. Um, and 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 then if there if and when there are conflicts and things aren't going smoothly, we then could use that insight into helping you get back on the path to to gratification and happiness and a happy life. So when you see something then like, um, let's just say depression, um, is that something that can always be traced back to early life? Or do you see a lot of instances where somebody has depression or they have anxiety and they had a normal childhood, you know, or like as normal as it could be, like they had, a, they come from a two parent household and they were loved, they were held. Um, but something happened maybe even recently that kind of threw everything off the rails, maybe even like, a, um, you know, some kind of inter, like drug interaction or something. Um, or can you always really trace it back to early childhood? Oh, no, no, there's definitely uh, organic type of depression. There's a hereditary portion of it. Some frequently people who have a significant depression, we call it a major depression, have a have if we trace their family history, they have close family members who've had depression. And we know there's a there's definitely a, a biological factor. That's why some of the people who have come to me for depression get treated mainly with medication. Others need uh, psychotherapy and still others need a combination of both. And what are your thoughts about um, the pharmaceutical approach? Is, is that kind of your, your first line of defense or do you ever, do you look more at the alternative, um, you know, medicine world, maybe like more natural products, maybe um, like, do you ever try to not put somebody on medication as much as possible? Or, or of is course, that, of course. Do, do you find that it's, it's actually better to, Oh, yes, definitely. In other words, you know, somebody uh, somebody comes and, and they uh, they're depressed because they can't um, uh, can't find the right uh, position in life or can't find the right partner in life or or uh, blame themselves for something that happened, uh, you know, some bad thing that happened or whatever. You know, uh, they may benefit mainly by psychotherapy. It's often um, when the when the depression gets to a point where you have vegetative signs, vegetative symptoms. By that I mean they they don't eat, they're not sleeping. Then you can't really wait for the therapy to solve everything. Mm-hmm. And that in those situations, you you sort of try both. You know, and also we didn't we didn't mention, but of course, suicidal ideation is a very serious thing, and and you can't mince things and say, well, you need a a year of psychotherapy if somebody's suicidal. They may need a year of psychotherapy, but you probably would also try an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. And I, I I often see like when I do research into um, like major depressive disorder. Um, or actually if I want to, um, research anxiety, because it, it, it almost feels like 
anxiety is the thing that people deal with, but it doesn't have the stigma that depression does. But yet I see them kind of like both in the same bucket. You know, it's always like a lot of studies they they publish it's anxiety and depression, anxiety and depression. I, I don't see a lot of anxiety being looked at on its own. Do, do you ever see, or in your experience working with people that you might consider have anxiety, is it always paired with depression or, or can anxiety kind of show itself as like its own thing? Well, somebody could have a, a panic disorder, you know, which is really severe anxiety and, and a panic state. Uh, and that might be the predominant symptom. But if that symptom uh, prevented them from functioning, or prevented them from having their relationships, there may very well be an added element of depression, even though the predominant symptom was panic disorder. If they didn't have the panic disorder, they might not be depressed. But when they, when they find that they're having a panic disorder and it's overwhelming their functioning, there may be depression mixed with that. And with, with like an anxiety situation, like a panic um, disorder situation, um, and you start digging into like a psychotherapy, um, you know, uh, you start digging into their psychotherapy. Um, is there is there a lot of kind of past trauma in those, or do you notice like kind of a common theme with people who deal with anxiety and panic disorder specifically? I would say there's a wide variety of, of, of approaches. Not everyone has had a traumatic situation. Um, some people have, and that certainly is, is an issue. Um, you know, where they've had some traumatic situations at work or in their life, uh, and that may very well be there, but sometimes there isn't that, or it's not apparent. And one has to work with that's what kind of makes it interesting. You there's no automatic plan. You know, you have to look at each person as an individual and explore where there is and at the same time um, be active in the treatment. And when you're when you're digging into somebody's past, you know, with the psychotherapy and, and you start to find something that was a trauma, maybe it was a serious trauma. Um, you know, how do you, how do you really work with somebody? Cause you can't, obviously you can't go back in time and eliminate that, but, um, you know, how does somebody go about making peace with that peace enough to where they can start to recover, you know, in their present life? Okay. You're talking about the psychotherapy aspects of, of that. Well, that's, that's a very interesting thing. There, there are actually different schools of thought, uh, or different approaches, there's a cognitive behavior approach where one looks at the symptom and tries to teach the person uh, techniques and things to do when they are feeling uh, whatever the symptom is. And then there's the psychodynamic approach where one, uh, usually with a fairly intense therapy, sometimes psychoanalysis, uh, Let's the patient go more or less free form into different things and watches the pattern, including the relationship that develops in the patient's mind between the patient and the doctor, known as transference. Hmm. Uh, And then by sometimes by uh, pointing, analyzing or pointing it out to the patient, um, you know, you know, you're you're treating me just like uh, you or you seem to feel about me the way you felt about your father. And they say, yeah, well, yeah, you're right. You know, uh, I just think that you don't care what I say, you know, and that's the way you felt. You know, then you bring it into the room itself, the, sim- the, the symptom and the origin. So that's so that's another approach, whereas the cognitive behavior approach might give the person exercises to do whenever they felt a panic symptom coming on, they should do certain things or or uh, try to get certain images into their head. And so this, you know, there's a, a variety of, uh, of approaches. And when you're when you're talking about somebody's past like that and, you know, you're digging into the relationship with their parents and, I, and I'm asking because I have a baby and I'm kind of curious, like, at what age 
are they starting to kind of form these, you know, these emotions that they're going to carry with them for the rest of their life? Like if you aren't like, if you're a baby and you're crying a lot, let's say you even have like colics and you have the parents who just let the baby cry it out. Don't get them. And then you have the parents who go and like, they pick them up constantly the second day and they just are constantly holding them. Um, does that make a difference later in life or does that kind of not really matter? And it's kind of more of the stuff during their more formative years of like five, six, seven, the relationship with their family. It's a good question. It's a, it's a hard thing to really say about the early lights you know, the early years, you know, the pre-verbal years and how much that really affects people. Uh, but certainly as the child gets older, two or three years old or or, um, or three or five years old, uh, um, th then I think it begins to influence, you know, in other words, what memories you have, the memories that you have. But in my thought, there's no doubt that something happens at the very early age, if somebody's traumatized, like you take what's going on now in Ukraine, uh, you know, where these kids are 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 fleeing and and bombs are falling, you know that that very well could, could that very well could affect them in the future. It could, it could, it could, it could be in a positive way. They they could become very patriotic or they could become uh you know there's anything could happen but there's no doubt that that that's going to influence them in a strong way you know yeah. uh, i think that, i think it's a very good point it's so interesting too because you know you have so many people um you know like who come from like hard backgrounds, you know, they come from poverty or they come from abusive parents or they come from neglectful parents and they end up becoming very successful adults. You know, they end up getting, they go to like medical school or law school, or they have a, they have a great job or, they, or maybe they're just normal. They have a family. And then you have the same people who grew up in that same kind of environment who they, they repeat the pattern and they, you know, end up getting in trouble, go to jail, or they, they also live in poverty or they, they have all kinds, maybe substance abuse problems. Um, you, what is the dividing line between those two people? You know, like uh, it's, we're, we're talking about nature versus nurture, but you know, is there something that like kind of divides like a, like person A from person B, person A becomes both and both start in the same environment. Person A is successful, person B is not successful or even vice versa, where it's both, both start in a very good, loving, nice environment good parents, present parents, one, one repeats the pattern and is very successful. One goes the opposite way and becomes a, you know, substance abuse and jail and, you know, rehab and all that stuff. Like, obviously it's, it's kind of a wide scope of different patients, but I'm curious, like if you have any experience working with those kinds of situations. Well, what you really are asking to see, and you know, I know you like to research things would be to research identical twins. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because identical twins have the exact same biological state. Um, and if they really diverge in their personalities, it would be interesting to know how they, how they came to di diverge. You know, if one became a, a criminal and the other became a priest, uh, one would, one would wonder about that. And by the, by psychic determinism, I think we could, probably figure that out if we work with somebody for a long period of time, you know, that it would turn out that, that, uh, you know, one, the mother and father used to say, Oh, you're the little devil. And the other one said, Oh, you're, you're, you know, you're so pre you're a, a holy person or something like that. So, so I think with psychic determinism, even if we took identical twins, which would start off exactly the same. And we studied the person or, or spent time with them, we would begin to see how they diverged. So, since I think the concept of psychic determinism is valid. In other words, there's some, some reasons why. It's built on top of our biological makeup, there's no doubt. You know, if we were unfortunate enough to be born autistic, obviously that's, uh, that's gonna greatly affect 
what you do and 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 uh, interact with what the experiences were. Mm-hmm. And what do you what do you think about um, bipolar disorder specifically? Because I, I'm not I, I, I could be wrong, but I think I've heard that bipolar disorder isn't actually it's not an ICD nine. Um, so it's not actually even diagnosable, but it's often, um, used to describe like somebody's pathology who has like, uh, who has a, a certain level of depression. Uh, bipolar disorder is a legitimate diagnosis and it's, it, it means a person who has a, um, whose mood at times is in a, uh, manic state um they may be manic normal manic sometimes and then normal or they may be may be manic and then depressed uh they could so there are different variations of it but the, the diagnosis of bipolar is you know fairly well accepted uh and and manic behavior and uh, grandiosity and um you know, rapid speech that goes with it. And, uh, you know, sometimes the disorganization that happens during that state are all, you know, very real. And there's been tons written about them, you know, in the literature. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like, um, not that I, it wasn't a diagnosable thing, but it was, um, I don't remember exactly what it was. It was, it, it, I, f- I feel like I've heard it was hard to diagnose or something like that. Um, just because the the line isn't so clear with where well, with some some patients it isn't, and some people it's very clear. Sure, you know, and I think it 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 varies. You know, the 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 diagnosis and the uh, and the uh, official diagnosis. I'm looking for my little book here. It's a book that has all the diagnosis with codes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, DSM five. Yep. Yeah, uh, that's okay. You know, but you know, and sometimes you need that for certain documents or certain decisions. But but uh, you know, basically everybody's different, and everybody is a combination of of uh, very complicated factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The um, I, you know, I, I wonder sometimes with some of these things, um, and I'm sure some people listening are gonna get mad if I say this, but um, I feel like sometimes people talk themselves into some of these disorders. Um, I knew a girl who um, she she had bipolar disorder, um, but I remember distinctly she would always tell me that she had bipolar disorder. She's like, oh, but I did this because I have bipolar disorder. I have that because I have bipolar disorder. Like, it was almost like at some point she heard what bipolar disorder was, whatever she had going on, she said, that's what I have. And then she just constantly reinforced it in her mind that she had that when, you know, I, I mean, I don't know the specific brain chemistry that leads to bipolar disorder. Maybe she had bipolar disorder, but do you find that there's also an element of people who have a lot of these conditions almost like reinforce themselves into the condition? Well, you see, somebody like the person you described would be less likely to go see a therapist. You know, so, you know, to see a therapist, unless they're really being pushed into it by somebody else that they can't resist. To, to, you know, to see a therapist, you have to at least accept the fact that you need help. Mm-hmm. So then you're saying like somebody like that, like they don't want help. They want to have the condition, but they actually don't want help. That certainly could be the factor. And, um, you know, sometimes the um, bipolar goes with uh, grandiosity and um, thinking they're the greatest. and. Um, that can lead to some problems. You know, we don't try to diagnose um, people that we're not, that, that we haven't seen. You know, there's something called the Goldwater rule. Do you know, did you ever hear that? No. When Barry Goldwater was running for president, 
A lot of uh, people, including psychiatrists, he was running against Lyndon Johnson. I think it was 1964 or 68, I don't remember. Um, a lot of people uh, thought that he had some psychiatric problems in the, in the grandiosity state and, um, and therefore wasn't fit to be president. And a group of therapists, I don't know if they were just psychiatrists, there might have been other, other um, mental health people and psychiatrists, they, they signed a petition saying that they didn't feel that Barry Goldwater was competent to be president because of his psychological things. It, you know, you could picture that happening perhaps with the last president, somebody a group might have said that. Uh, and the American Psychiatric Association uh, responded to that by adding a, uh, a, an annotation to its ethical uh, to its ethical code. And the annotation was that one should never diagnose somebody that they haven't seen, mm. publicly diagnose somebody that they haven't seen. And of course, if you've seen somebody, there's supposed to be confidentiality. You know? Sure. So, so it, it, it's, and it's nicknamed the Goldwater Rule. So like, you know, if somebody said to me, would you sign a, a petition saying that uh, that um, uh, Donald Trump is uh, you know is grandiose and uh, and has a psychiatric condition that makes him that way. Even if I believed it fervently, I shouldn't sign such a petition because I'd be violating the ethical code of the American Psychiatric Association. Mm -hmm. And we're so we're so quick to to say things like that about people, you know, maybe it's because of social media or people just want to get behind like their tribe, but we are so quick to say like, you know, that person's got, you know, clearly has, you know, uh, uh, some form of dementia, you know, or this person has, you know, this person's losing their, their memory of this person's, uh, psychotic or whatever. Like we're so, we, we are so quick to judge people in that way and label them. We've all forgotten the Goldwater rule is what I'm trying to say. Well, yeah, but there's a difference between a lay person saying, you know, um, such and such, some presidential candidate or whatever, you know, is uh, is mentally unbalanced, you know, if, and as compared to a prominent psychiatrist saying that. Of course. You know, and, and so, I mean, not everybody agrees with the Goldwater rule but it's in the code of ethics. There are people who say, you know, it's your obligation to speak up. So you can make a case in another way too. What do you um, kind of like shifting to this idea of mental health in the 21st century, um, especially in recent years, especially with everything that's gone on the last couple of years with COVID and lockdowns. Are there any conditions that you're seeing more of? Uh, are you seeing like, um, you know, obviously respecting the Goldwater rule and, and not trying to say this many people are depressed or this many people have anxiety. But I do know that like within the first year of lockdowns, anxiety, anti-anxiety medications shot up like 50 percent or something. Well, crazy there's, like no, there's no doubt that not only did anxiety shoot up, but depression and suicides increase too. So that, you know, it's it, asking one psychiatrist to, to, um, to, to make a, a view of the, based on his own you know, experiences is not really valid because, you know, how many patients could one psychiatrist see, you know, even if it's a hundred patients, you know, it's not, it's not like doing a survey of 2000 people or something like that. So we do know then that, I mean, during the lockdowns, during this time of oh, COVID. I think there's no doubt the suicide rate increased. Mm -hmm. And that certainly is an indication of depression. What was your thought then when, because I feel like, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or anything. I just felt like it was, it was pretty obvious that like early on in the pandemic, when they were doing this, when they were like where I lived in Puerto Rico, it was hard lockdowns. Like I almost got arrested for being outside of my apartment building on the street at seven o'clock at night 
because I was like three minutes or whatever after curfew. It was, it was crazy. Um, but fortunately, like I, I had things to get me through that sort this time, you know, that actually I feel like made me stronger, but I feel like there's a lot of people who they really suffered. And I felt like it was pretty obvious that locking people in their homes, taking their jobs away, taking their ability to even go to the office and interact with people. I feel like that was just kind of a no brainer as far as this is not good for a lot of people's mental health. I wonder if what your thoughts were when, when all of this was happening. Well, remember that a psychiatrist is also a physician, uh, you know, and that I was very aware of the potential deadly dangers of the of this epidemic and and um, that influenced me in in what i thought <clears throat> and how i acted and in fact i was very interested psychologically and and i did mention it in my book uh, the shrink talk is the name of the book um, about um, the the um, the denial of of people who were not wearing masks when the epidemic was at its peak, and who were not and still may not getting vaccinations, and um, you know that that was a very disturbing thing to many of us. And and people try to understand that, and and then and what to do about it. And uh, the way I conceptualized it is that there is a very common defense mechanism that we all use called denial. We use it all the time. We don't contemplate our our own demise. We drive our car. We don't think that. If we just turn the wheel this way, we would be dead. Uh, and other things, other other significant things that that are that should be obvious are just blocked out or denied. And what became clear was that certain people were using denial to um, to deny the reality of the epidemic the danger of it, the, necess the necessity of wearing masks and the necessity of getting vaccinations. And I called that denial fatal denial because it really could, was, leading, was leading to so many deaths, that fatal denial. And then there was the question of, so you, and people said to me, okay, so you got a fancy term for it. You know, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I, I think I made a recommendation that um, probably didn't get picked up as widely as it should have been picked up. And that is that in order to fight the denial, you have to have some powerful um, anti-forces to the denial. And, and what, I, what I suggested and recommended was that on every newscast, when they showed the number of deaths, they should always show how many of those people were not vaccinated. Sometimes they did, but they should always show that. And then in addition to that, even though it's a sensitive issue, the media should have had interviews with family members of non-vaxxers who died or got very sick. Mm -hmm. It's a sensitive issue, but it could be done. Um, and in addition to that, they should have interviews with people who survived, non-vaxxers who survived and, real, and, and went through a tremendous life-threatening hospitalization. I realized what the mistake they made. And there was one other factor that I suggested should be done for the deniers, for the fatal denial. And that is to find people who the fatal denier, and it would have to, this would have to be done by focus groups, to find people who the fatal deniers identify with. 
celebrities, sports figures, things like that. And then uh, assuming that these figures, these people were not deniers or anti-vaxxers themselves, to, to have them uh, be constantly on TV. So for example, and let's say Johnny Cash, I'm, I'm thinking, let's say he was a, a non, if he were a non, if he, if he favored vaccinations, you know, and if he got vaccinated, they should, there should be public service announcements with him or LeBron James or whoever, you know, whoever, whoever it was determined that the non-vaxxers tend to identify with, and this would be determined by focus groups, mm-hmm. you know, so, so I tried to suggest, and I outlined in the, in the book and in other places and other articles I wrote, the approach that should be dealt with for the, with the non, non-maskers and the non-vaxxers. And um, it was done to some degree, but not to the degree that I think it should have been done. So you're saying that the people who you call them the deniers, the people who didn't want to get vaccinated or, or even wear a mask. And I, I don't know if you can put those people in the same bucket because there are plenty of people who were for the mask and didn't want to get vaccinated. And there's plenty of people who didn't want to get vaccinated. Or wear, like I think there's a lot of nuance in that. But regardless, um, in your mind, coming from a psych, psych, uh, psychiatry background, what would that have communicated to people or to, to, would that have, are you saying they should have done that as a way to communicate to other non-vaxxers like, Hey, look at the mistake they're making. Or I, I could you, could well, you talk I more about that? If, if, if a non-vaxxer mm-hmm. were to see a, another non-vaxxer with emotion, describe how they realized they made a mistake. Mm-hmm. that that might influence the non-vaxxer to consider being vaccinated. Or if the non-vaxxer saw one of their heroes saying, man, you should really get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. People that with whom they identify with, that might help. Because it, it was this fatal denial was causing thousands of deaths because more people were dying who were not vaccinated than they were vaccinated, mm-hmm. you know, way over, you know, there might, there were some who were vaccinated were, but you know, that's a, that's a factor. But don't you think that the people who got really sick, who weren't vaccinated or, or who even died, who weren't vaccinated, I mean, there was a point where obviously everybody knew the vaccine was there. It's not like it was a secret that you could go get vaccinated. In fact, in many places, like in New York City, you could walk around and they had vaccination tents. You could go get vaccinated for free. It was the easiest thing in the world to do. People were more than willing to give you a vaccine. Um, don't you think that those people, they they weren't vaccinated, not because they didn't know they didn't they didn't assess their own risk. They just they just chose to not get vaccinated because that was their choice to do. Well, yeah, but I think that they um, they were denying the fact that this was endangering themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. In other words, if they really believed that um, they've increased the chances for them to have a fatal disease and give a fatal disease to their family, it's hard to believe that they would continue to refuse the vaccinations. So instead, they they uh, rationalized and did a a defensive. Uh, development of thinking that that justified what they were doing and that that had to be challenged in a not only in an intellectual way but in an emotional way mm-hmm. and, and that's why sometimes the person who they identify with like somebody is my hero you know says he's my absolute hero and all of a sudden that person says man you, you know you, you should get vaccinated um that might influence them. Or if they saw somebody who said, I was totally against vaccinations, but I got the flu, I got the um, the virus and I gave it to my kid and my kid now is very sick. I, I'm so sorry I did that. That might influence another non-vaxxer. Yeah. Yeah, I think there were a lot of angles to it. Um, but I do know that, I mean, it, it eventually came out that 
vaccinated people were able to spread the virus just as likely as unvaccinated people. So not just as likely. I think it was just as likely. Well, let's let's look at the facts. You know, I mean, they were the, the I'm pretty sure I, I think even Fauci said that at some point that I mean, it's neither here nor there at this point. But, um, you know, I just I well, just maybe wonder, they could spread. Maybe I don't know the, the exact numbers, but maybe they could spread it. But the, the people who they would spread it to would be more likely than non-vaxxers because the vaxxers would reject it. So, so if you were vaccinated and, and you were spreading the, the COVID and I'm a non-vaxxer, I would be more likely to get, to pick up the, the virus from you than somebody who, who was uh, vaccinated. I don't know about that because, you know, I think what happened was a lot of people who were unvaccinated, if they got sick, I think on both sides, you know, those who got sick were, were pretty good about if you got sick, you stay away from people. I think that was just kind of like the the, the common courtesy thing to do. Um, but in a lot of cases, you know, a lot, I know this is how I got sick. I, I got sick because I got the Delta like over uh, what was it like last summer. And this was when people had first started getting vaccinated. And there was um, there was a big event that had happened. Um, and then a lot of those people from the event were at an event that I was at. And at that event previously, somebody had spread COVID and everybody got it. And you had all these vaccinated people who were at the event that I was at who, because they were vaccinated, thought that they there was no way they could have had the virus. And so they were just as likely to be carrying the virus and spreading it at the event that I was at as anybody who was wearing, unvaccinated. people wearing masks? Uh, some people were, yeah, but no, some people were wearing not. masks. Well, you know, the non-people not wearing masks were more likely to spread it and more likely to get it. But you have all these events, you know, sporting events over the last year that, you know, they would fill stadium football stadiums with 80,000, 90,000 people. And you never heard of a mass breakout of COVID at those things in arenas, you know, for basketball games. Um, I think I wait a minute. You can't trace that. There are 20,000 people at at an arena mm -hmm. and then they go home. There's no study about those 20,000 people. We do know where certain uh, well-known figures, you know, who were attending various events, not wearing masks, did contact the disease. I think that uh, I, I believe that there was no doubt that vaccinations diminished the chance of getting it and um, and that wearing masks diminished the chance of getting it. I think there's no there's no doubt about that. And and um, variations of that. Uh, have to be looked at uh, and um, and have to be dealt with because this is a fatal disease. Even even if the numbers were fifty percent or seventy percent, you know, you say, well, it's kind of close. Those are the human lives. I, I think it's uh, there's a very very um, s significant event uh, this epidemic and um, and the people who died from it and the people who got sick. And uh, and I think, you know, that that we needed to find ways to uh, to try to make people as safe as possible. And that that's why I, that's why I, I, you know, I recommended specific things in my book, Shrink Talk. And what did you recommend in that book? Well, I, I told you the uh, oh, the the putting uh, the people on TV and stuff like that. And, you know, I think they did. I, I mean, there was a lot they of if you watch to a degree, but not to the degree that was necessary. Occasionally you would see somebody who said, oh, I had the virus. It was terrible. That mm -hmm. it should be much more intense than that because uh, you're fighting this fatal denial. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult. I, I have a, a childhood friend who I correspond with who is an anti-vaxxer, anti uh uh, anti-mask and he sends me things all the time yeah you see you see this you see that you see this but the, the the fact is there's no doubt that the scientists and medical profession 
um, have clearly determined that wearing a mask at the time that it was it was advised and getting the vaccination clearly saved thousands of lives. It might have, but I, there was a lot of masks that were absolutely useless. You know, you're talking about a virus. A virus is incredibly small and people are wearing these cloth masks, which they, you know, I, I'm the sign. If you're talking about the scientific community, the scientific community all pretty much agreed that cloth masks didn't do anything. You know, you have people I don't not wearing their masks. Didn't do anything. I said they weren't as good as the regular masks. But they, I mean, they, they, they didn't do anything. Like they couldn't, they couldn't do anything. Once they realized that the uh, 95 mask was better then that mask was recommended. It was recommended, but nobody wore it because it's a very uncomfortable mask to wear. You know, when you walk around, nobody's wearing an N95 mask. They're wearing the blue, you know, surgical mask because they're not even wearing them correctly. Uh, I disagree with what you're saying. I think the, the masks definitely made a difference. Certain masks clearly are better than other masks, but it's there is certainly uh, any mask is better than no mask. And then I, so this is an interesting question for you then, you know, at, at what point then do we start to say like, at what cost do we take these sorts of precautions, right? Like, obviously you're very passionate about, Hey, you know, safety first, get the vaccine, wear the mask. That's totally understandable. Um, and then there were also people and you, you're alluding to them as anti-maskers or, or uh, you know, is, is there some kind of harm or some kind of like backlash that can come from from labeling groups of people like that? You know, like we're, we're literally saying and, and on the other side, too, you're you're a pro-vaxxer, you're a pro-masker, you're um, you know, you're you're too, well, you're too cautious. You know, is, is there is there some kind of well, well one, one of the. I think you're making a good point that one has to be empathic towards the other people, to, towards the people who have the other point of view. And, and one should not just say you're bad, evil people, you're stupid. You know, I think I think if we that's why I, I called it a defense mechanism that people have. And uh, and one needs to be empathic towards it. One has to try to understand it and and try to find a way to get through to them. That's why I, I was suggesting these different ways to have have their heroes talk on the public service announcements mm -hmm. to have people who they respect and and um, and 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 uh, value make the case for vaccinations. You know, don't make some, you know, liberal who the, the person who, who's the who's the uh, using fatal denial doesn't respect at all to uh, to make the plea. It has to be uh, somebody who they respect and identify with. Mm -hmm. And I think to some extent that probably worked. But I also think there was a lot of coercion involved for people who got vaccinated only because their job was on the line. You know, they didn't actually want it. They were at, they were literally forced to or they would be out of work and they couldn't support their family. Well, you know, if 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 you had a company, let's say that had 100 employees and you forced them all to get vaccinated, <clears throat> I wonder how many lives you would have saved. You can never you can never know. You can never know. It's it's an impossible thing to know. But, you know, the, que I feel the question would be that you uh, we might not know the number, but there's a good chance that we've saved some lives. There's everything to me in this whole thing is like, we could have, we could have, we could have, but we don't know because there is not, because we haven't seen, we haven't seen the data. Like the data that I know of for someone like me, I had a very high chance of surviving the virus. If I got it, I had a very high chance of like not even having a complication. Now I got it and it sucked but it wasn't it wasn't anything that I couldn't handle. I know there's people out there who are immunocompromised, who have serious chronic issues. That that's not the case. And I feel like as people, we should make our own decisions, you know. And, and you're right. Like if if the medical establishment feels that people should be vaccinated and should have medical uh, and should be wearing masks, then of course there was plenty of campaigns out there. Um, 
to do like nobody who didn't get vaccinated or a mask wasn't aware that there was, you know, if you looked up to a, a professional athlete like LeBron James, LeBron James was wearing masks while playing basketball or at basketball games. And I think actually, if anything, I think the messaging was very confusing in the whole thing because, you know, you would see these sporting events where the stadiums would be full, the arenas would be full, the basketball players would be wearing the masks while off the court. Then they get on the court and they would run next to each other. They'd breathe on each other. They'd sweat on each other. They'd push each other around. They'd get in each other's face. They weren't wearing a mask, but then they'd go back to the bench and then they'd wear the mask. And, you know, if you were somebody who was like on the cusp, like, should I should I wear the mask or do I not want to wear the mask? I feel like that was very confusing messaging to begin with. There's no doubt that we have a lot to learn about how to message. And that's, that's why I was trying to make some suggestions in that regard, but messaging, look, you're, you're a messenger, you're a uh, communicator, you know, that, it, it, you know, that's, it takes a certain amount of uh, thoughtfulness to be a good communicator. And what do you, you know, think about kids today, you know, like now that we're, we're kind of getting out of the pandemic every states and they're, they're low, they're, they're taking off the mandates and we're all kind of going back to school and back to work. Companies are having their companies go back to kids. But I, I wonder about the kids, especially with like the ADHD, especially after two years of something like remote schooling. Like I went to, I've been going to school remote and it's a completely different experience. And I know I have friends with kids, I have family of kids who are doing this like kindergarten zoom and first grade zoom, and they haven't been around friends for a while. Um, do, do you see anything on your end as far as like, kind of, you know, what has become of that with, with the psychology of children? And, you know, I can go from my experience with people, patients and people that I know, but <clears throat> I don't think I'm in a position to to come up with any big statement on this regard. I think there's there seems to be no doubt that um, depression has increased among young people. Suicide attempts has increased among young people. And, um, and that is probably related to what uh, what they were forced to do. Um, but but there may be good things that come from it. You know, they, they may be more skillful in communication remotely and there may be positive things about that. But there's no doubt that, that it's affected the young people. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody agrees about that. And I would imagine, you know, kind of growing up after this experience, like, like these kids, I feel like are dealing with almost like a collective trauma. Like this is a generation, it's almost like an experiment now, you know, we're going to see what this generation becomes, how people, how they're going to grow up out of this, how they're going to deal with it. Is it going to, is it going to be one of these things where we have almost like a lost generation or is it going to be like, you're going to have people that, that actually use this as motivation to, to do amazing things. I think you're going to have, the the generation that uh, experiences as children, I think they're going to be uh, probably more advanced in technology and remote comf comfort with remote technology than previous generations. Uh, they probably would have been anyway, but I think this was an added an added uh, factor. Yeah. Okay. So before we wrap up here, I have to ask you about your experience with two presidents. Can you, can you, cause I know you talk about this in the book. What, what, what is that all about? Okay. <clears throat> I was in the air force for two years in San Antonio, Texas as a, as a psychiatrist after I finished my training. And then I went back to New York and started being a psychiatrist, but I was invited back to San Antonio to give a talk. And I went back with my wife and then we're about flying back to um, New York uh, from Texas and um, the headline in the newspaper as we're on the plane, this is how I'm giving you the exact details, as we're on the plane taking off, the headlines have two big stories. One is that Nixon ended the war in Vietnam and two, Lyndon Johnson died of a heart attack. So my wife turns to me and says, it's too bad Johnson didn't live to see the end of the war in Vietnam because that was his biggest failure in life. And I said to her, I'll bet you he did. 
And I'll bet you that Nixon called him the day before he announced the end. Then I went back to New York. I'm giving you the long version. And then I went back to New York and I'm teaching psychosomatic mind body. And we're talking about heart attacks and heart disease. And I always would then tell the story how I'm sure that uh, Nixon killed Johnson. And then somebody said to me, you're always spouting off on that story. Why don't you ask Nixon? Now, by this time, Nixon had was disgraced from resigned and was disgraced. Um, and, and I don't know if you can see one of those things on the wall mm-hmm. is the letter from Richard Nixon to me. Because I did write him a letter and I asked him, told him my theory that he must have contacted him before he ended the war. And that's probably what killed him. And Nixon in the letter agrees with me. He wrote it personally to me and he agreed that uh, that probably did and that he had Haldeman, which was his his number one assistant, who was a well-known person at the time, call Johnson and tell him that they're ending the war. Johnson said, sadly, I know what that means. And the next day he was dead of a heart attack. Wow, that's wild. Now, the, the other, there's one other president I had an interaction with. I met a man whose son uh, was a soldier and was in Afghanistan and died. But he didn't die of an enemy bullet. He died of a suicide. His body was flown back to his family, this man, uh, with the with the flag and everything. But there was no letter of condolence from the president, who's Obama. And whereas any every other soldier that died in Afghanistan, the body comes back, the flag comes back, and there's a letter from the president of the United States. And because he had died of suicide, there was no letter. Mm. If he had been killed by a mortar, there would be a letter. And I thought that was not right. This man, the father thought it wasn't right. I thought it wasn't right. And at the time I was speaker of the assembly of the American Psychiatric Association. So I introduced a resolution that we should ask the president to consider writing a letter, writing a letter if that kind of happens. And, and um, it was passed by the assembly and then by the board of trustees. And then uh, it was sent to Obama and he changed, and he changed this policy. Wow. So, That's really amazing. Yeah. I didn't know that was, um, man, that's, that's, that's pretty intense. Yeah, and, and if you think about it, it's still a complicated issue because suppose he, he doesn't write a letter of condolence if, if the patient um, dies in the United States. Right. In other words, he's traumatized in, in Afghanistan, but he doesn't commit suicide until he gets back to the United States. Mm-hmm. No letter of condolence. And there's a lot of that. Yeah. So, and, yeah. Wow. Well, I'm, that, that's that's so cool that you had the the la- I mean, the fu- the first thing is pretty funny. The first thing is pretty interesting. Um, but the second thing that's um that's real deep and, you know, um it just goes to show like you got to you got to question things sometimes. You got to question the status quo sometimes and um because as as right as we think we have it, you know, like sometimes you need another perspective on things cuz I would imagine those parents, you know, they lost their son. Their son was over there just as much as somebody else's son or daughter who, who died from enemy fire. And you don't just kill yourself there because you, because there's nothing else going on in your day. You probably have had an experience that probably led to a lot to, to, to others dying. And right. And and obviously, as, of course, you know, you. so that was uh, interesting. And it sort of is a lesson in life to sometimes realize that you can, you can influence things. Yeah. 
Well, that's really cool, Dr. Bloomfield. I um, I really appreciate you you sharing all that. I really appreciate your time on the on the podcast today. Um, if somebody wanted to buy your book, they wanted to learn more about you, where could they go online to do all that? Um, they can buy the book, which is thank you for asking, which is Shrink Talk. Uh, they can buy the book on Amazon. Just just type in Shrink Talk, or they can go to shrinktalkbook.com. And that's the website that tells you more about the book. And you can also buy the book from shrinktalkbook.com. Awesome. Thank, thank you for, for announcing that. Thank you. You got it. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so excited to, uh, to have people check that book out. You know, any, any more that we can learn about the mind and about a lot of these different conditions, you know, I think, I think more education is better and we all need it. So uh, I appreciate your work that you're doing, Dr. Blumenfield. And, and I certainly appreciate your time today. Well, thank you very much. I really, really appreciate uh, being here. Thank you. You got it. And listener and viewer, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to shrinktalkbook.com, buy Dr. Bloomfield's book. If you enjoyed the podcast, today, remember to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and take a few hours and peruse some old Holistic Nootropics podcasts. And for more on all things nootropics, biohacking, and nutrition, head on over to holisticnootropics.com. Until next time, everybody. Peace. Thanks for listening. For more brain boosting info, in depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com.